of Jude, and I want to start in verse 3, and we're going to read down to our text today, which is verses 8 through 10. So, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who once who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He is kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So now he's going to continue what's been similar to 5 through 7. So he uses the phrase in the beginning of verse 8, Yet in like manner... These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So beginning in verse 5 through verse 11, Jude is speaking and setting forth, if you haven't noticed, a set of three different ideas three times. So there are kind of three sets of three that are here. So in verses 5 through 7, he gives us some illustrations, some real ones of what apostasy looked like. And so he deals with the Jewish people. He talks about angels. um, And then he talks about Gentiles. What we're going to look at today is we're going to look at some descriptions of the nature of those who are apostates and have turned away from the gospel. They are false teachers And he'll talk about three specific things today. They defile the flesh. They reject any kind of authority, God's authority in regard to who he is and also his word. And they also blaspheme. He says they are the glorious ones. Uh, Two weeks from today, we will look at the third set of the three where he will talk about these that he's still talking about walk in the way of Cain. They seek gain like Balaam. And then they are just like those in Korah's rebellion. And so today we're going to see the second part of the three today. So as we begin by way of introduction, I want to make some statements and and walk us through some things to remind us of kind of where we've been in Jude, but also to remind us today of, of why this is so important for us to understand. The local church, this one here and every other local church, should be aware of and embrace the great responsibility of two primary things. One is to proclaim the truth, 
to make the proclamation of the truth a consistent practice of the church in every aspect of its ministry. And so not only is the local church to proclaim the truth, to make sure that the truth is front and center, they also are to do this, is that there is to be a mission and a passion to also protect the truth. So not only do we proclaim what we know to be true, but we also fight for and protect what we know the scripture is telling us. And so Jude is giving us this counsel. And I tell you, you look around in our day and time and you even listen in the church and, and also in the culture and nobody, it seems today, wants anyone telling them what to do, how to live, what to wear, um, how they ought to think, where they might, where, where they can go, where they can't go. And there's just a great pushback with that. You can see this mindset sometimes even with some of us who are Christ followers. As sometimes even there in the church, people just want to live however they want to live. This does not, this mindset in the church doesn't align well with those of us who claim to be servants of Christ. Where our mission in our life and in the direction of our life is to be one of submitting to the Lordship of Christ and submitting to His Word. And so therefore we live in a way that we are to be told how we are to live and how we are to think in regard to our faith and the implications of our faith. But for many, they gather in ministries or churches and they don't want that ministry or they don't want the church to talk about anything that would take a hard stance about something in their life or something else that may be around. And, and you hear this language, Pastor, just affirm my views this morning. Just, just tell me... Um, kind of speak in line with what I've kind of, I think, um, entertain my children, let me come and let me sit and let me hear something affirming and soothing to get me through the next week. Because I don't really want to do any discipleship work on my own. I want you to do it for me or somebody else to do that for me. And so feed me a satisfying word meal. And so a pastor should work at that, should do that. But that's not how the people should be. The people should come ready to contribute, not just in ministry, but ready to to bring a heart of worship for God and a readiness of mind and ears to submit and listen to the word of God. And at times what we need more than anything, yes, is soothing. Is the scripture not soothing? Have you found it to be soothing in your life? So at times we come through those texts And they just lift our hearts and they remind us um, that we are walking in the way that God has for us. And it just lifts us and it encourages us. And then at other times, because of what a text says and that we have to come through, that it challenges us. And so we need both of those things. And even in the challenge can bring a soothing to us because it reminds us there is a truth that we are to stand in and stand upon and to walk in and to proclaim and to fight to protect. And so I remind us this morning, just as Jude was dealing with this in the first three decades that the church was in existence, we today still have high standards in regard to doctrine. They are ones that come from the scripture. There are issues that do need to be addressed in dealing with the brokenness that exists inside the church, that at times we all feel we are all broken at one point in time. 
If you're not, write a book and do a conference so that we can come and learn from you. But we are all broken at times. We all need God's word to come in and do its work in our hearts. And so not only is there brokenness in the church, but there is brokenness in the culture. And all around us, we are seeing in our day and time, particularly over the last decade or so, a growing movement at a fast pace, particularly among two generations, the millennials and Generation Z. And there is a big turning away of those who have grown up in the church, and it is taking place in large numbers. Um, The Bible would call it apostasy. Um, The big terminology today is called deconstruction, where people once have had a strong faith and they are deconstructing that, tearing that down. Um, Whatever name that we want to call it, it's all the same. It It is a movement away from affirmation of being inside the faith and affirming great faith and now turning away from that, and it is all around us. It's been around for a very long time. You can go all the way back to the earliest days and you can see counsel and teaching and warning about this kind of stuff of in regard to false teachers and people turning away from the Lord. So Jude is written, calling you and I to come alongside him and to consider things um, from this perspective. One of the unique things about Jude is this. He is, he is writing a warning that is connected to false teaching, not outside the church, but false teaching where? Inside the church. And so several times in, in this short letter that Jude writes, he speaks about, he, and he talks about it in, in verse uh, 3 or 4, I think it's verse 4, where he talks about people from outside have crept into the church unaware in verse 12, he talks about men being in the midst of the church and, and, their, and their love feasts and what was happening and taking place there. And then also in verse 12, he talks about that they're, they are feasting among you without fear. And so the, the danger and the warning is, is that Jude is calling us to take a look about what is happening and taking place inside the church. And so we need to be aware of that. So Paul, writing to Titus, at Crete, warns Titus of this reality. I tell you, the Cretans must have been a difficult, that church was a difficult church. The Apostle Paul couldn't get things straight, and so he leaves, and so he says to Titus, hey, Titus, go all over Crete, and I want you to set straight all the things that are wrong in the churches that didn't get fixed when I was there. And so as he writes to Titus in chapter 1, verse 9, this is what Paul tells him that you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So he's telling them, teach these in the churches. I create this. Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So two key qualities in regard to the leadership that Paul says there that Jude is encouraging us of, and it's this. One is that we are to be about explaining the truth and discipling people as to what we are to believe and what we believe it. So we are to explain the truth to disciple people. Secondly, Paul says there, and then we are to do that in such a way that also at times we expose those in the church by disarming those who seek to teach things that would destroy 
the people in the church. So here we are again today as the church has been in the last 2,000 years. We are in a war and we have an enemy. And the enemy is real. And they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. So as we encounter Jude 8 through 10, we're going to be given pictures by Jude to understand a bit of this. Now, before we get into Jude, I want to ask you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a second. Just go to your left a bit and you'll find 2 Timothy. I like intro sermons, if you haven't ever noticed, and so we'll, um, we're going to get to Jude in a second. But um, Second Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read something there in just a second, and then we'll get directly into Jude. So a question that could come out is, or come up is this, why should you and I be so concerned about right teaching? Um, now our culture and some would say, well, why don't we just let, you know, let people go, let them, let them live and kind of do and believe what they want to do. Well, the reason we don't do that is for a couple of reasons. One reason is just simply this. You can look at the condition of a church or a denomination or a ministry, and you can see what soft doctrine and soft stances has produced in the midst of that church or that ministry. And so has it brought about spiritual maturity? Has it brought about a strong conviction to the things that the Scripture teaches? And so if it doesn't, that's an indication that we should be concerned about right teaching. A second reality is simply this, is that we should be concerned about right teaching because it is a dominant theme running through the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there should be a concern about this. And so... Um, And so in this section, Jude is going to be describing pretty graphically the character and the conduct of those who have crept into the church, not just necessarily a local church, but maybe the church in general through books or conferences or uh, music or anything of that nature that is drifting in and affecting the people within a church. And so Jude is wanting us to know that we must be concerned about this, and he's going to give some pretty graphic um, and clear teaching about that. So look with me in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, and I want to share this first as we begin to get into the text this morning. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who is the pastor at Ephesus at this time, and he's giving him some instruction as to what he is to do. So he tells Timothy, do your best Give it your best effort to do this, to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now I'm going to talk about this just for a moment because it has everything to do with what we are doing as we walk through Jude and what we will continue to do and be and strive to be as a church at LifePoint In the days ahead, a church's leadership and its elders and its staff and its small group leaders, anyone who teaches inside of a church, but I want to particularly talk about the elders and the leaders that are guiding the church. 
there is to be from my position to the elders this. We are living, we are leading not to please you. We are to live in such a way that God is our clear focus. That, that's the deal. And if that ever changes, if a pastor um, or, le- or the leaders in the church are like, well, this group of people think the Facebook page ought to be this or, or it shouldn't be that or this group of people thinks that we should this and that and, and all these things that are okay things, but they're not the primary thing and they are pushing certain things that aren't primary, the leaders of the church have to be reminded that what we are doing is that we are to live in a way, lead in a way, to present ourselves, as Paul tells Timothy, to God. That's our, our mission, is to make sure that we are standing before the Lord and He is approving of how we are living, leading, whatever the case may be. And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, this must be your great effort as you lead the church at Ephesus. You do your best. You give it your careful attention that you know that you are every time you're leading, every time you're teaching, every time you're preaching, you are a workman and that workman needs to stand before the Lord as one whom God says, I approve of you. So how, what, what is the way, according to this verse, that God approves of leaders in the church? What is the focus that should drive them? Well, he tells us in the second part of 2 Timothy 15. So we work hard to present ourselves to God as one who is approved, who is a worker, who has no shame and not ashamed of the gospel And this is what they practice. They rightly handle the word of truth. So there is to be great effort to stand approved and affirmed rightly before God. Leaders are to be a worker of the gospel who is secure in the work. I should should never, anybody else, when Mark stands up here to preach or whoever else stands up here to preach... There there should be a clear mind to know this, that what you want more than anything else is for me to tell you the word of God. And to not coddle or to not, not do anything else other than a faithful, handling, accurate teaching, accurate dividing explanation of what is in the scripture. Now watch. If that doesn't happen and we're worried about who's mad, or what this person wants, and they think that the leader should be doing this, and, and maybe the leader, again, maybe the leader should be doing something. But if the leaders are striving to be biblical and to do the right things, the people of the body want to encourage the leaders in this way give us the word, give us the purity of the word, rightly divide it, and let the Spirit deal with us as it's being divided. And so Paul shares with them that if we're going to be approved and we're going to know what's false that can even come and arise inside the church, it begins by the leaders being deeply committed that the scripture is rightly handled in every way inside the church. 
This is my great task. This is the great calling upon my life. And there's a lot of things. Listen, there's a lot of things that are causes out there that are important, that need attention to, that need God to raise up and quicken people's hearts and spirits about some of those things. But that's not my job. I have one great responsibility as I predominantly stand before you, and that is to rightly study the word of truth so that when I stand before you, I'm rightly dividing the truth. And so sometimes some will say, well, you need to get involved in this. You need to get involved in this. You need to get involved in this. And no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. Now, if God tells me to, or I sense God wants me to, he's giving leadership, um, I will do that. Listen, you, we do this here and you do well, but I just want to remind you, you must keep myself and the elders constantly reminded that we are to be about at the church leading you in the scriptures. Because if we don't, if some other cause that is underneath the banner of Christianity that we should be concerned about, but the leaders are not to be primarily concerned about that, we are to be concerned about the proclamation of the truth and the protection of the truth within the body. And if we don't do that, then we begin to go down a road that's going to lead us somewhere a decade and go, where have we been and how did we arrive here? And that's where we are today in the West. And so Jude is very important for us because he is reminding us, first of all, that we are in a battle for objective truth over subjective truth. Our world today is very much subjective in everything And so as Jude writes this, sometime around 67 AD, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And about three years after, Jude is writing this by Rome. But already, three decades in, a great battle for truth is happening in the early church. And so as you and I look around and we listen and we see the teaching of the day, we still see that we are in the same age-old battle that Jude was in. It has new names, it's got some new packaging, but it's just the same. It just might sound a little bit different and look a little bit different. It is an age-old battle, and this is why we need a solid standard to live by, which we will talk about today. So the very fact that this letter needed to be written three decades into the church in his generation and preserved for the entire church age in the future means this, that this letter is not to be avoided. It is to be carefully considered by us. So let me remind you of some warnings, not just from Jude. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus says, Many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers... 
to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And he says this, avoid them. Don't have anything to do with them. Paul writing to the church in Corinth who had lots of issues. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen and 14. For such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. So it is, Paul says, so it's no surprise if Satan's servants also disguise themselves even as servants of righteousness for the church. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, this is our responsibility. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Let me give you one more. First Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... That person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, and slander. So as we now get into Jude deeply, we're going to touch on, he's going to talk about something that we see a lot today particularly more in the West, but it's happening also in other parts of the world um, in part of what we would call Christendom, evangelicals um, that's there. And there's a warning. This was happening that we see today was happening back in the day as well. So he's going to say this is, this is what's happening. And then he's going to say there are three things that have resulted from this. So look at verse 8. So he says, "In yet in like manner... These people, relying on their dreams, so that's, that's what their confidence is in, kind of an imaginary idea, their own subjective truth, their own subjective idea. They're relying on their dreams. By the way, let me just stop there for a second. Um, I've started like dreaming, like just sleep dreams again, and they're crazy. Things that, like, you know, you have a dream, you wake up, and like, how does all that stuff get connected and come to life in this dream? And so, um, but this is what happens a lot that you hear today is you will hear ministers say, I had a dream and we're going to talk about dreams in a second. I had a dream and this is what the Lord told me. And then this movement begins that is not connected to sound doctrine. And over time you can see it. So he says this, yet in like manner, these people also, here's what they do. They rely on their own subjective Ideas, dreams, and then from that, three things happen. They defile the flesh, they ultimately reject authority, and thirdly, they blaspheme the glorious ones. So let me set forth for us the foundation of what Jude is dealing with in 8 through 10, and it's this. There is a subjective experience that is guiding some churches, and some ministries. So Jude is saying this, 
that these teachers that have crept into the church, they are relying on their dreams. This word rely means to trust in, to live by, to guide them. And so because they have walked away from God's truth, again, I want to remind us, this is what Jude's dealing with. People have walked away from the truth, and yet they're still inside the church, and they're relying on their own subjective experiences to satisfy their lives, and they feed on what is false and not true. And they give themselves great freedom to say some of the things that they've said because they can just say this, well, I had a dream, and God said this to me in my dream. I've never been one to go back and forth on social media until about two weeks ago I started. And um, I kind of stopped again a couple of days ago. And, but I was going back and forth with a guy and, uh, and, and came, to a, came eventually to a place where um, he said he, he, was, he was mocking people like us who believe that Scripture interprets Scripture and and that scripture alone, Christ alone, and, and these things of this nature. And so I asked him, I said, so what guy do you go by? And he said, well, I just let the Holy Spirit speak to me. And so I said, well, so I responded back to him to say, well, how, then how, how do, what, what standard do you measure that what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you is the truth? And he responded back to say, well, I decide what it is that the Holy Spirit is teaching to me. This guy has five books that are out there being sold today. And I was going back and forth with him last week about that reality. And so again, I just want to remind you, if you think I'm just kind of making these things up, these things are happening everywhere. And so Judah saying, you need to be aware of those who say, I had a dream and God told me, to do this and what they are doing is contrary to what the scripture teaches. If that is the case, we need to have our radar up and not follow those who are relying on their dreams. Now, let me deal with this just for a second. In the Muslim world, you may have heard of this, that there are dreams that are happening in the Muslim world where Christ is coming and revealing himself to Muslims and they are coming to faith. That's, that's not what Jude is dealing with here. That is, that is a dream that is pointing to Jesus. But a dream that points away from sound doctrine and teaching is not a dream that has come from God. Now, there are two places in the New Testament that talk about dreams. One is in Acts 2, verse 17, where Peter on the day of Pentecost is quoting Joel chapter 2. If you remember that, old men will dream dreams and... The young men will have visions and and things that are there. But watch, that context in Joel 2 and Acts 2 is that the dreams are pointing to Jesus in revelation of Jesus. As Jude is writing here, the context of all of the dreams is pointing away from Jesus. And so there is to be a discerning aspect of our hearts in this. And so Jude says, you've got to be careful of those who claim that they have a fresh new revelation from God that is different from the scripture. This is how Mormonism came about with Joseph Smith. Mary Baker Eddy of the Christian Scientist, this was a dream. The Jehovah's Witnesses, also from this. The Gnostics of the first century 
were those who claimed special insight and knowledge from dreams. About 15 months ago, I was overseas, got a call during the night and didn't know what it was, and so I checked the message in the morning, and it was someone who used to be a part of our church and in our history, and, and I know this person is not walking with the Lord, and so they had called to tell me that they'd had a dream during the night about my life and what I needed to know and what I needed to do, and so if I wanted to know about that, I could call them. Well, I didn't call them because I know, I know this, that we do not need to listen to people that are going to be pointing us away from what God is telling us and what is clear in regard to Scripture. And I, I, I trust that God can do anything. But I know that the primary way that God does things is that God does things by pointing us to Jesus and getting us back into the Scripture. Now I want you to turn to the Old Testament just for a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I want to give one more thing here and then we're going to kind of walk through these points a little bit more quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is the overarching thing that Judas warning us about. Watch out for those who aren't relying on Scripture. They are relying on a subjective sense of direction and teaching. Again, we're going to see here that this is not anything new. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you shall not walk after the Lord your God in fear, and you, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve and hold fast to him. Look at verse 5. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your Midst. So again, this is going way back, right? Quite a bit of time frame from Deuteronomy 13 to Jude. I watched a video of a famous evangelist who a few years ago, well, it's probably been about five years ago, was on Christian television and And this is what he said. He kind of covered himself and gave himself an out. He said, somebody had a dream and a vision, and they called me and told me the dream and vision. And what they told me is, is that one of my next meetings, Jesus Christ himself was going to appear on the stage. 
So he kind of gave himself an out. Well, somebody called me, but he's broadcasting. And then the host that's interviewing this famous person said, boy, I want to be at that meeting. And so, again, this, this is just out there. It's more in the charismatic realm of things, but it can happen. We should not be foolish to think that somebody might come along here one day and try to bring that up here. And so, therefore, again, Judah's writing, you've got to be careful of all of this kind of stuff. And if he, did you notice why, why, why did God allow that false prophet to come into the midst of Israel? To do what? To test them. To test them to see what? Whether they genuinely, truly knew God and loved him with all of their heart. So even God allowed this to just kind of refine the people of God. And how serious did God take it back then? What, what, did, what were they to do to the person who did that? Capital punishment. Killed them. Now, we, we don't do that. We're, we're not doing that today and not recommending us to do that. But I, what I am doing is this. God takes this pretty serious, doesn't he? He's going to bring judgment upon this. And so that's why it's important that the only way you can discern is that you follow the scripture and you know the scripture. So Jude was having to deal with this. All of these dreamers had a dream last night and God said this, but it didn't line up with the sound doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore the church should have recognized, okay, no, we're not following that. And if one were to follow that, it would be a test to see whether or not they love the Lord. And so, so these tests are going to continue to rise up. And they will continue to be there. And so it's important for us to know um, the truth of that. And so here's what happens. Here's the thing. So those who follow, those Christians who follow um, teachers who just have a subjective truth, not an objective truth that's tied to the Scripture, there are three things that happen. And we're going to walk through these real quick. First thing is simply this. Eventually, there's a defilement of the flesh. The reason there's a defilement of the flesh, which means um, there's a, you're, you're stained or you're tainted with the ways of the world is, is you're not following truth. And if you're not following truth, you're walking down a path that is man-centered that's going to lead to more man-centered, fleshly kind of ideas and practices. And so Jude is telling us, Moses was telling the nation of Israel Watch out for dreamers who come along and they say something. Even if it comes to pass, you'll know who they are because they will, if they, they will eventually say, hey, there's some other paths that we ought to worship. There's some other pathways other than Yahweh. And you'll know that it is not true, that they are a false prophet. And so Moses is communicating it. Jude is communicating it. Watch out for these because they will eventually lead you to defile your flesh. Again, this word defile in the Greek means this, something that is tainted, polluted, contaminated, or stained by, or literally defiled. And Paul writes to Titus, um, the writer of Hebrews speaks about this, that there's a defilement that comes when there's a following of false teaching. So just a couple other things I could say about this. If you'll remember in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain. What's he getting up on the mountain? Mount Sinai. He's getting the law. He's getting the word of God. 
He's gone for 40 days, and what's happening at the foot of the mountain? Rebellion, right? Hey, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Aaron, can you make for us a God that, that we can say is the one who led us out of Egypt? In 40 days that happened. After they've been led cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. By the way, the pillar of fire was still present. There was thunder and lightning up on the mountain when Moses was up there. And so there is, there is this reality that in 40 days Israel turns from the Lord, demanding Aaron to build a golden calf at the bottom and near Mount Sinai. And this is the kind of idolatry that corrupts within and corrupts without, and it does a number of different things. And then in Numbers chapter 25... Israel is standing on the brink of the promised land and Balaam has been trying to get them and, or this king, Balak, is trying to get them. He's trying to use Balaam and so Balaam finally says, okay, look, it hadn't worked. Every time I tried to do a curse, it's been turned into a blessing. But let me tell you, Balaam says to King Balak of the Moabites, let me tell you how you can get the Israelites. Start inviting them into the city from the camp. So the men of, in the camp leave their families. They are idle, have a lot of time. They begin to be interested in what's happening in the Moabite cities. They go in there. They begin to sit at the tables and eat with the people. They begin sacrificing to the Moabite gods. And then they begin having sex with the Moabite women. One of the men brings a woman back out to the camp of Israel outside of the camp of the Moabite city and brings them into the camp and brings them right in front. And this plague has been broken out among the people. You can read it in Numbers chapter 25. This plague has been broken out. Moses, Joshua, and others are pleading. People are dying in the camp. And this guy brings this woman into his tent to have sex with her. And a guy named Phineas takes a spear and follows them in there and drives the spear through them and kills them. And the plague stops in that moment. So I want to I remind you and I of, of just the, the danger of this. That if we're not following the truth, we're following something else. And it's going to lead us to a place where there will be a defilement of the flesh. Second result of that is there's a rejection of authority. If you're just relying on dreams, there's a rejection that is connected to authority. And so Jude just says that. In verse 8, so these are relying on dreams. They defile their flesh. They reject authority. And I tell you, this makes perfect sense. If you're going to rely on yourself, you're going to reject God's authority and, and what God's called someone to walk in. It's natural to defile the flesh in the rejecting of this. This word reject in the Greek that Jude uses here means to set aside something that's already firmly established. So again, I want to remind us, this, this is not some secular rock music band. Jude is talking to people inside the church who claim the name of Jesus, who are teaching things, who are saying, God's given me a vision. And yet that vision pulls people away from the truth and Christ and points them to something other than the Bible and other than Jesus. 
and it leads them to defile their flesh, and it happens because there's a rejection of God's authority, Jude tells us here. There's also another pastor. I've been watching him over the last several weeks as I've been walking through Jude, and he's very cutesy with words. His new thing is this, very popular. He's in Atlanta, Georgia. And I watched several interviews of him where he, he says this, the Bible doesn't say anything. John says something. Peter says something. Paul says something. But the Bible says nothing. And I want you to watch the cute language and sly language about that. The Bible does say something. This is, yes, individual authors used by the Holy Spirit wrote this. But this is a book. Are y'all with me? Okay. This is a book. Lots of chapters or different things within it. We are not. Watch, listen. Why, Why should a believer ever try to rename and belittle what God has established. We are to exalt it and embrace it and affirm it. So Jude Jude says these dreamers who say they have a subjective new truth that God has given them, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and thirdly, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now I want to walk you through this and so that we understand this. This is one of those interesting things that are here that's in Jude. Jude has kind of an interesting book uh, to look at. So look with me again um, in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, three things, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So you have a Bible in your hand? Can you lift it up so I can see it? Okay. All right, we're going to turn in it, okay? All right, y'all ready? We're going to turn in it. I want you to go to Deuteronomy 33. We're just going to read a few passages, and I want to explain to you what does this mean, blaspheme the glorious ones. He's speaking about angels here. So Deuteronomy chapter 33. Verse 1, we're going to read verse 1 through 3. So this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came down from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And note this, he came with ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And yes, he loved his people, and all his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. Now watch this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I found it fascinating when I wrote this talk. So when God came down at Mount Sinai, and he's meeting with Moses, he's giving the Ten Commandments, he's teaching Moses the law, guess who also came down at Sinai? With God, what does the text say? Angels did. Thousands of his holy ones. These are holy angels. 
they came down. And so the indication is, yes, it's God's word. It's not the angel's word. But the angels were present as God is giving the law to Moses on the mountain. So there's a holiness taking place at Sinai. God is present. He's revealing himself and speaking to Moses. He's revealing himself in words and laws. And the angels are there. And so in giving the law, the angels have come down with God. So they are connected, being present as God gives the law. Now I want you to go to Psalm chapter 68. Psalm 68. Verse 17. It's also an interesting verse. So the chariots of God are twice 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. What does that sound like? Sound like the book of Revelation? Remember Revelation? Thousands upon thousands and myriads and myriads. So the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Here's the idea here again. Just as in Deuteronomy, the writer in Psalms here is saying this, that the angels are present as God was speaking the law and God was giving the word, that they were present in the midst of that. And again, so this is another reference. And, and, and the writer here is just saying this, that when God was doing that, it was, like it, it was like it was a worship service that was happening. Can you imagine what that was like on the mountain where God has come down? And the angels have come with God and God is speaking and he's giving his, his, his revelation of himself and for the people in the law and the word. And the angels were present that was there and it was like a sanctuary of worship that was happening. Now go to Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen, that great sermon he speaks in Acts, Acts 7, 53. He says, and you who receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So again, this is referencing back to the presence of angels in the midst of the giving of the law. Okay, hang with me. Go to your right, Galatians, two more verses. Don't you love hearing those pages turn? It's a great sound. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. One more to your right, the book of Hebrews. And then we'll wrap this up. 
Hebrews 2, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? All right, we're going to stop there. We're not stopping, but we're stopping there for a moment, and I'm going to wrap this up, okay? So I want you to go back to Jude. Hopefully you had your finger there. If not, you know where it is. Jude writes, those who rely on the subjective truth of their dreams, they'll defile their flesh They reject authority, the authority of God's lordship, the authority of the word of God, and then they blaspheme angels. Now hang with me here. It's not going to take long, but listen to this. It's God's word. The angels do God's bidding, but it's clear. I've just read us. Were the angels present when God was giving the law? Yes, they were there. It's not their word, but they were present. And so when a teacher inside a church just relies on a subjective truth and idea and what they want, what they feel, what's more culturally relevant, even though the scripture teaches about something, because the angels are present as God was giving his word and they were there, that that rejection of God's word is a blasphemy against the angels who were with God as God was giving the word. And at times, you can read in the Old Testament, you can read who appeared to Mary and say, in Joseph and say, hey, this is happening to you, Mary. An angel was. Joseph was going to quietly divorce Mary. An angel comes and says, no, don't do that. They do God's bidding by speaking his word when God sends them. And so if a church, people or a ministry or a preacher does anything that rejects the authority of God, there's in a sense with that a blasphemy of the holy angels. Yes, a blasphemy of God, but also a blasphemy of the angels who were present when God was giving the law and and when they do God's bidding. And then in the next verse, look at it, something unique happens and takes place there. There's an example for us. And when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he simply said this, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if I had more time today, we'd spend a little more time with this, but I want to show you what Jude is meaning and what we see in our day and time as well. So one aspect of this blaspheming of angels, these glorious ones, these holy ones, is that they were present when God was giving the law and giving the word, and, and they do God's bidding. Um, they're so awesome, these angels, and glorious, and God-honoring, and 
Christ is so focused on who they are. They, they in heaven today are, are speaking back and forth about his holiness and how awesome that Christ is. And so when there's a rejection of his authority and there's a defiling of flesh, then even the angels, along with God, are blasphemed. And then Jude says, I want to give you an illustration of a holy angel, how he responded one time to a fallen angel. Now, we don't, know, we don't know much about, we know that Moses died. It's at the end of Deuteronomy. And the end of Deuteronomy, it says this, and God buried Moses. And so it doesn't tell us in the text there, there's this letter it's called the Assumption of Moses. It was found in the 16th century. We have no early copies of it. It kind of sounds very, very familiar to what Jude has here. Um, but there's a verse in Zechariah that sounds very similar to this verse in Jude and also connected with what the Assumption of Moses says. The Assumption of Moses is not Scripture. But there are, I hope you know, you, well, I don't know if I hope you know this, but you may know this, that um, truthful things can be in other things, and they're not sacred scriptural text. And so, so Jude would have known about this. Peter would have known about this. He writes about kind of the same thing that, that Jude writes here in a little bit different way in Second Peter chapter 3. But when Moses died, Satan wanted that body. Because we know who he is, um, he didn't want Moses' body for anything good. If he could have got his hands on the body, you know what we would have today? We would have Moses' churches and Moses' something, and people would be going places and worshiping Moses. And so we don't know what happened, but Michael, the archangel, who is so powerful that in Revelation 12 tells us that he cast Satan out of heaven. And yet one day, before Moses' body, Michael and Lucifer, Satan, are having a conversation about what to do with Moses' body. And I tell you, you will see this in charismatic circles. And some of us have probably been guilty of doing this. Satan on that day, I mean, Michael on that day didn't say, Satan, I cast thee from my midst. He just simply said this to the most vile, evil one. You see, Michael bids, does God's bidding. And Michael, as a holy angel, would not go beyond what God would allow him to do. And so as he is standing in the midst of Satan himself, Michael doesn't rely on Michael's authority. He relies on whose authority? God. And so he doesn't blaspheme Satan and, and produce a judgment against Satan. He just says this, the Lord rebuke you. And if you've ever been in a place or if you have ever done that where probably we haven't done it. A lot of famous charismatic pastors have done this, that they speak as if they can cast Satan out of the room. No, they can't. We don't have that authority. God, God does. And so what do we do? We lean on God's authority. So let me tell this illustration. 
my plane doesn't leave till 8.50 tonight, so we do have time, right? Okay. So we're reading a lot in Ezra now and some of these latter aspects of the returning exiles that have been away for 70 years. Zechariah was a prophet in that. Um, we've been reading in Ezra that there's a, this is a test. I should test y'all. Are you reading Ezra? There's a high priest. Anybody remember what the high priest's name is? It starts with a J and it's not Jesus. Joshua. He's the high priest when Ezra was there. Okay. So in Zechariah, he, he writes this. Listen, listen to this. This is in Zechariah 3 verse 1. He says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before, listen to this phrase, listen, note, note this, standing before the angel of the Lord. When you go to the Old Testament, at times where it says the angel of the Lord, this is an Old Testament reference to the presence of Jesus. So Zechariah has this vision. He says, then he showed me Joshua, who was the high priest. We read about him in Ezra, standing before the angel of the Lord. And then listen to this. And Satan standing at the right hand of the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, to accuse Jesus, the angel of the Lord. You know what Jesus said to Satan in this vision that Zechariah has here? And it says in verse 2 of Zechariah 3, 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So Jesus gives an example. Michael, though this is ha- hadn't happened yet, as, as Michael and Satan are there with Moses' body contending about what's going to happen. But Michael knows this. I don't do my bidding I don't go beyond what God wants me to do. I live within what God wants me to do. And so I'm not going to act on my authority, though I've got authority. And we learn about how much authority Michael has in Revelation 12 when he casts Satan from heaven. So he has more authority in the presence of Satan right there with Moses' body. And he just does, watch, look at the lesson, learn from Michael. He just does what Jesus did in Zechariah. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. And so this idea that we have all this command about things that's not there. And so Jude is saying false teachers blaspheme holy angels when they reject the authority of truth and not even Michael blasphemed Satan when he was in his presence. He just left it to the Lord. John MacArthur writes of this text, he says, Rather than personally cursing such a powerful angel as Satan, Michael deferred to the ultimate sovereign power of God, following the example of the angel of the Lord in Zechariah 3.2. This is the supreme illustration of how Christians are to deal with Satan and demons. Believers are not to address them, but rather to seek the Lord's intervening power against them. So I'll put these up on the Facebook page today before I leave. We don't have time to go through them. But I went through the places in the New Testament where we have instruction in how to deal with Satan. And you know that there's not one instruction that tells us to speak to Satan. Tells us to resist him and submit ourselves to God. Remember in the desert, did Jesus engage in a conversation? No, he just responded by Satan by quoting what? 
Scripture. So if we're going to speak, we speak Scripture. And I tell you, I don't think we... Lucifer is mighty. Look at, the, look at the mess that he has made throughout world history. And yet I remind us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Let's pray.